have a look at your mobile phone. Just, just have a good look at it. How many different metals are needed to make that thing work? And this week on Download This Show, more importantly, where exactly are those metals going to come from in the future? Also on the show, Twitter lets go of one of its weirder and more pointless features. Is virtual reality a way forward for a struggling music industry? And why is the gambling industry investing so heavily in artificial intelligence? This is your guide to the week in media, technology and culture. My name is Mark Fennell and welcome to Download This Show. Yes, indeed. It is a brand new episode of Download This Show. Our guest this week from different <laughs> corners of the nation, Daniel Van Voom, news editor for CNET. Welcome back to Download This Show. Thank you for having me in these trying times. And where are you talking to us from today? Uh, Sydney, Australia. Okay. And Jen Dudley-Nicholson, national technology editor for News Corp. Welcome back to the show. Thank you very much. Good to be here. How's sunny Brisbane? It's nice. I believe I'm allowed to go outside, but I'm just too afraid to. So, yeah. <laughs> All right. We've got lots to work through in the show today. I want to start with Fleets. Fleets is a, is a function that was on Twitter that uh, kind of disappeared. Why, though? Tell me what's happening with Fleets, Jane Dudley Nicholson. Well, it turns out, and who knew, Fleets were fleeting. <laughs> so the fleet is dead, unfortunately. And just to, to track this back so that people understand the backstory of this, fleets look just like Facebook stories that appeared at the top of the timeline. And then those Facebook stories, they look just like Instagram stories that appeared at the top of the timeline. And those Instagram stories look like Snapchat stories where they actually came from. And uh, Facebook tried to actually buy Snapchat for $3 billion back in the day, like 2013. Um, and its owner said no, so it just started nicking its features. So it's actually kind of nice to see them um, not profit from this sort of thievery, perhaps. It just didn't take off. It's quite the domino effect, isn't it? I, I totally forgot that there was like this Snapchat to Instagram to Facebook to Twitter sort of effect of, of this particular function. I totally forgot that this was part of it, Daniel. Yeah, it's funny. As I age away from Snapchat's uh, target audience, I too forget all about Snapchat uh, starting this this whole thing. But it's uh, interesting. I mean, Fleets didn't even last a year. They they were introduced in November, so it's about eight months. They were announced to be wrapping up last month and then August 3, I think, was the last day. And obviously everyone on Twitter knows you had that weird one day where everyone was posting fleets about how, oh, it's my first fleet. I might as well do it now because this is the last chance I'm going to get. I guess Twitter's real problem is it's hard for people to start like sign up to Twitter and just start tweeting because obviously if you're not a public figure, you sign up and you tweet and you tweet again and then nothing really happens and you're like, oh, this isn't really that good as opposed to Facebook and Instagram where you have all your friends you can add. So I think Twitter was just really keen to get people, you know, posting more more engagement on the platform, but uh, evidently it didn't work at all. How is it supposed to get engagement though, Jen? Like, what, like, in what way does it get more or less engagement than the average Twitter experience? I suppose the idea was, I mean, it's almost like a, a sit back experience because you can click on one of these things and it will just go through, you know, various stories and you'll be able to sit back and watch it. That was the theory, I suppose. And, and it was a new way to engage. And I think Twitter's been trying a few things lately. Like this week, we've seen a new font. And surprisingly, like this is probably the least rage I've felt from a social media network making a change. <laughs> People seem like 
pleasantly surprised about the new font, which I'm, I'm shocked by. But they've been trying out, like there was Twitter Blue, their subscription service where you could not quite undo your tweets, but you could see the mistakes and, and maybe undo them just before they go out. They tried audio and they're still trying audio. Apparently Spaces is still a thing for anybody who's still using it and, and wants to nick that from Clubhouse. So I, I guess Fleets was just part of that, making the platform a bit stickier, um, as they say, um, even though that sounds really gross now I say it out loud, <laughs> um, and, and keeping people on there, I suppose. Um, I mean, I used it a couple of times. I think the most interesting things happened on its final day. I mean, not just with people saying, you know, I'm, I'm fleeting for the first time, but there was a whole bunch of people putting up naked photos or pretend naked photos just to fleet its way out. That's it. I'm sorry, Fleet. You were you were interesting for a hot second and, and I'm not sorry to see you go. I missed that hot second. Where was, where was I when the hot second <laughs> happened? Naked I missed all of this. Maybe yeah. You missed the on. naked people. I think just on the topic of, you know, making um, Twitter more, like what was the point of the fleets, I kind of feel like, I don't know how you guys feel when you tweet, but um, it's very judgy. I feel it's nothing. Very judgy my, my, my soul is empty when I tweet. I promise you. <laughs> my soul is empty all the time, so I can't tell the difference. But, uh, you know, when you tweet, you feel it's a very judgy platform. You know, you, you tweet something and you think, was that, was that dumb? I don't know if that was a dumb thing to tweet. And then, you know, as days and years go on, you think, yeah, that really was dumb. So I think maybe... Maybe fleets were a way to, you know, add some frivolity to the platform, but evidently people people aren't there for frivolity. They're there to judge. So we've identified what doesn't work. What is it, Jen, that Twitter does need to do? Like, is there is there some function that you think is desperately being cried out for right now that they have not yet implemented? That's the undo feature, Mark. Yes. I think when they, I mean, when, when Twitter announced that it was coming out with um, a subscription service and it, I think it's $5 a month, people overwhelmingly said, okay, and where's the undo feature? And this is really problematic because you've got this, this idea of a tweet should be around for a long period of time. And if, if you retweet, for example, then it should actually stick around and, and you should not have retweeted something that then becomes something entirely different. So it makes you look like you have a different stance, for example. That's the feature that people want, and I don't know if it's the feature that Twitter's quite nailed yet, and so that's very problematic for people. However, I would say, like, you know, in, in a time of lockdown and with, you know, one billion press conferences happening every day, people have a lot to talk about on Twitter. Um, I'm just not sure that they're engaging in any different ways than they usually do. But see, this is the thing I find confusing, Dan, because every other platform has an option to, to edit and all it does is it shows you a little thing underneath saying, hey, this, this status update has been edited. Like, why is it so hard for them to implement that? Is it just the speed at which people engage with Twitter that, that makes it difficult for them to do that? Well, I suppose that's, that's, what, that's what everyone's question is every time Twitter does anything, except for introduce a new font, as Jen noted. Everyone's pretty happy about that. But any time... Twitter does anything else, you get a whole stream of people saying like, hey, this is cool, but what we really want is that edit button. And I guess Twitter's argument is that since many public figures use Twitter as kind of their like a platform to make announcements and such, you know, if you say something awful or unintentionally awful, and then, you know, you get criticized for it, the edit button allows you to go back and, and change all that and kind of cover up your tracks. And I guess this has been edited button, which would show the original would kind of defeat the purpose of that. Or at least that is what Twitter would say. But I, like you, am very confused as to why it's not there. And I don't think anyone really has an answer, do they? The silence there suggests that no, no one does have an answer. <laughs> <laughs> Download this show is what you're listening to. It is your guide to the week in media, technology and culture. Our guest this week, Daniel Van Boom from CNET and Jen Dudley-Nicholson, National Technology Editor for News Corp. And 
Why are betting companies, online gambling companies, going so hard on artificial intelligence, Dan? Because they just don't make enough money, Mark. Uh, so that uh, question <laughs> has to do with Tab uh, introducing a, a new modeling feature. Essentially, they've invested millions and millions of dollars uh, into integrating AI technology into their platform, which will allow them to make thousands of simulations per second, which will allow many more products to be offered. And when they say products, they mean things for you to bet on. They can offer bets as the game progresses. So let's say you're watching the NFL. So the upcoming, upcoming NFL season is going to be uh, where this like really takes off for them or where they're going to start introducing it. As the game progresses, they're able to use a bunch of data to simulate every possible outcome and offer more and more bets as the game progresses. The speed that comes when you employ artificial intelligence, one would assume is going to make it that much harder to, to regulate this industry, Jen. Absolutely. And look, to be honest, employing artificial intelligence into this kind of industry, I imagine, is is plagued with regulatory problems as well. Because, I mean, it kind of sounds like the plot of a movie where, you know, a smart teenager works out how to fleece the betting companies. I mean, this is the kind of thing that you would do if you were incredibly smart and wanted to make a lot of cash and spend it Bruce's Million style. That's probably way too old a reference for this show, but there you go. <laughs> um, <laughs> but I mean, it, it's all it's all about speed. So what Tabcorp is saying too is like they've, they've built this one sort of AI simulation engine and that will look at past games, but potentially in future, this could look at, at games in real time as they're played to calculate the odds of things. Now, if you're a dedicated gambler, that's fantastic because it means you can gamble on more things, you can gamble on more players, you can gamble on you know, American Gridiron, even though you know they don't have people formulating the odds for that specifically because this, this AI machine can do it. However, it also means they've got a really good idea of what's going to happen next because people and stuff and, and physics aren't as unpredictable as we all think they are. And um, this gives them an advantage, essentially, in, in working out the odds of things and, and working out where, you know, maybe you won't be able to, to place a, a long odds bet that actually comes off. I mean, on the plus side for punters, it means that they're going to be able to bet on more stuff. And on the bad side, they're going to be able to bet on more stuff where the odds are really, really finely honed. I think the bigger question is whether it will work. I mean, uh, you know, it's easy to say, as we've seen in the tech space, people to say, hey, we're integrating AI and this is going to make everything better. And often it really doesn't. But if we assume it works and that they are actually able to calculate odds better and offer more uh, bets on that basis, then, yeah, I would, by, you would assume that would mean that this is bad news for problem gamblers or people who gamble a lot because ultimately it just means they're going to lose more money, right? Mm. Has there been any response from regulators about this new move? Not that I've seen so far, although I think the technology is kind of really early in its formulation. I did a bit of reading on this and it seems like there's talk about using artificial intelligence in casinos overseas. And that's really fascinating and potentially really scary as well, because I mean, on the plus side, these companies will be able to tell who are potentially really problem gamblers and kind of identify them because they're, they're a bad look for business and, and make sure that they're, they're not being targeted. But it can also target other people really well and get them spending more and get them gambling more than they potentially, you know, would have normally. So I think that this is one of the, the future areas for regulators to look at and make sure that everyone's playing within the rules. Gambling apps and companies use a lot of the same technology that people criticise, you know, Facebook and Google for, you know, following you, tracking your data and offering products based on your data. But again, as noted, 
products means bets which you're likely to, to lose. So if you think about the way they can use data to offer you bets already, plus their capability to use AI if it works out, to offer bets that work more in their favour, then yeah, it could be a, a, a very big problem indeed. It has been a particularly terrible two years for people in the arts and the music industry, um, although there's been some interesting kind of innovations that have come out of it. Australia's biggest festival, Splendour in the Grass, decided to move into a virtual reality sort of thing called <laughs> Splendour in the Grass XR. But there's actually quite a fair bit going on in the world of virtual reality, and there are some that say that virtual reality might actually be the future of the music industry. Dan, how exactly is virtual reality going to help struggling musicians? Well, in an age where you can't go to a venue with thousands and thousands of other people, artists are resorting to various uh, virtual reality companies, which essentially record them in front of green screens and then offer that product as a virtual reality experience. But of course, that only works for people who have virtual reality headsets and similar. So I'm really not sure how well this will work since VR has been in the process of taking off for the last six years or so. And I'm not really sure this will drive people to the platform. Yeah, it's funny because I feel like there's been various different attempts, Jen, at doing this. Like, you know, I think Samsung a couple of years ago did this thing where it was a headset where you could just like slot a phone in and the phone could kind of be the screen that, that worked. And I remember thinking, oh, yeah, that might make this accessible. And obviously there's things like Oculus Rift, which is owned by Facebook. And I know all the different console companies, PlayStation VR, have tried it at various different points. But it, it does seem like it doesn't want to take off as a category. Yeah, it's really interesting. It's, you know, everyone's trying to make fetch happen still. Um, and you mentioned like one of the, the the Samsung things as well. I remember when they first brought out their gear, which is this big plastic headset. And I think they even did a deal with Qantas to get them on planes as well, which was an interesting idea. Although, you know, planes, I remember them. Oh, um, planes. One of the first things they brought yeah, I, out was I would this... do virtual reality if it could just like replicate the experience of being on a plane. That would be cool. Yeah, actually. That, probably that the closest nice I'll get for the next six to seven months. <laughs> um, well, one of the first things that they brought out as part of uh, the Samsung Gear VR, I think it was called, was a, a mm. Paul McCartney concert. And I will forever be haunted by this image of when I gave it to my mother-in-law. And she really enjoyed it, but she started waving at Paul. And he didn't wave back, just what so you know, dickhead. because it, <laughs> it, it wasn't live. I mean, obviously very rude of him. So she was clearly taken by the experience. And certainly, like, yeah, based on the past two years, we don't know when we're going to be able to get overseas acts. At this point, we don't know when, you know, some of us are going to be able to get out of our, our houses without serious consequences of all kinds. And so maybe VR concerts for the meantime make sense. It's just a case of how you get this equipment safely and, and are you willing to strap it to your head and, and pretend that you're actually at a concert. Don't stage dive with one of these things on. It does not fully replicate the experience. Thinking about the bits and pieces of the experience you do get and then the bits that you don't get, right? So I could appreciate how from a a punter standpoint, right, you could recreate the crowd, you could recreate the sonic environment, you could even recreate the, the stage. It's just suddenly occurring to me that there is a feedback relationship between the audience and the performer that that feedback loop is broken, right? There's no way of, of feeling the room. And, th and that's got to have an impact on performance, right, Dan? Yeah, a lot of these uh, VR concerts are, are recorded in front of a green screen. And so not only is there not an immediate response, there's really not a response at all. It's like the VR equivalent of when acts come to like the morning show and then like do their songs in front of like the crew. Uh, that's, 
That's pretty much it. Uh, bet VR. You know, no disrespect to those shows, but they, they are like a sonically empty environment often. Another interesting thing, not necessarily virtual reality concerts, but virtual concerts, which is kind of like Second Life, like concerts in Second Life. People still know what that is? I don't know. No, we should probably explain it because it is still worth mocking. No, it was the old... <laughs> sort of 3D environment where you could build an island and you could populate it with things and... Things like that. You build your own avatar. I like to, I would like to see the Mark Fennell avatar from 15 years ago. That would be good. Um, <laughs> and then, you know, you go into the world and, and you watch these concerts. And there are a lot of uh, apps and programs that do this. But again, there's the problem of driving people to these platforms. But what has worked is platforms where there are already a lot of people, such as Fortnite, uh, so Fortnite obviously has millions and millions of people who play it every day. And recently Ariana Grande had a concert within Fortnite, uh, which was apparently pretty cool. I didn't watch it, but it was apparently quite successful. So I think VR sounds like the obvious answer to this problem, but it might come from the places you don't expect, such as Fortnite. Well, that's a good point though, Jen, actually, because I mean, it's one thing forcing people to you know buy a whole bunch of new equipment and whatnot. It actually just might be simpler to have I guess what we're already saying, which is uh, bands performing in sort of digital environments where users already are, like games, right? Yeah, absolutely. And I think it's also worth pointing out that, I mean, you could potentially do a lot more like, different stuff. Obviously, you don't have that that feedback, but you could making an inflatable pig is a lot easier in one of these games, for example, than it is in real life, I would imagine. And so, you know, potentially you could have different elements. It's just going to take a bit of creativity from some of these bands and, and obviously a bit of creativity from the VR makers who could potentially incorporate elements of the game into it if that's where they decide to host it. And I would point out as well, remember when we used to mock QR codes? Like, <laughs> absolutely merciless. We thought that they were so stupid, like, that they were around for years before we actually used them. So the potential is there for VR concerts as well, if they can find the right audience and an audience who actually has the equipment and an audience who is willing to rock out in their lounge room and wave at Paul McCartney. We should just do a show dedicated to all the bits of technology that we mocked then suddenly after the <laughs> pandemic absolutely needed. I feel like there's a show in that. I think there would be a great show in that, and I, although I would look very foolish. <laughs> yeah, we'd just go back and play clips of us mocking things and then suddenly <laughs> absolutely needing them. You shouldn't listen to us. We're terrible people. Um, <laughs> is there any band that you think would be improved by watching them in a virtual reality environment where perhaps they can do some fun things where like they could mess with your your reality and your environment are there bands that you think would actually benefit from this it's got to be gorillas right i, I have very yes. outdated musical tastes but gorillas seem like they could do something cool with that so this is okay so for people playing along at home gorillas were a band that were already kind of a bit fake and there was they created like animated characters to be the pretend band members Yes, and they totally rule, or at least they did when I last listened to them 10 years ago. Other than the Gorillas, <laughs> I reckon... What, Bjork? Bjork? Bjork. Yeah, she's very experimental. I feel like she could, she could make this work. I'm so out of touch. <laughs> I feel like also, do you remember, like, Quine Yeomans from, from Regurgitator, he used to, like, back in the early days of, like, Corel Draw, he was putting together, um, you know, various various clips and stuff. I reckon that they could put, the Gurge could put together something that would be reasonable in VR, and I would like to see it. Besides which, they're probably in Melbourne and, and deep, dark lockdown, so I think they've probably got some time. You would assume so. Actually, tell you what, um, hit me up on Twitter or DM me and let me know which bands you think would actually be improved with virtual reality. Download this show is what you're listening to. It is your guide to the week. 
in media, technology and culture. And at the beginning of the show, I asked you to look down at your phone and wonder how many metals went into that phone and where those metals were coming from. Because it turns out, Jen, there are some metals we have in abundance and there are some that are a little bit harder to come by. Yeah, absolutely. It turns out rare earths are known uh, for being rare. Um, and the clue is actually in the title, which is crazy. But yeah, there's there's a lot of special things that go into making phone. And unlike what you've been served in certain press conferences, none of them rely on magic. A lot of them rely on mining. And um, some of those rely on mining things that, that are resources that are not are sort of infinite. And so potentially we could run into a problem where we've all got to use our own our old phones, which is tragic and, and there's probably other consequences past that. So what are the metals we're talking about, Dan? Metals like lithium, cobalt, nickel, neodymium, copper. But unfortunately, many of these scarce resources not only make up your phone, but they also make up the things we need to combat climate change, such as the batteries in electric cars, the turbines on wind turbines, and almost everything else, actually, that we need uh, to stop the Earth warming more than two degrees by 2050. And the fact that these shortages are already popping up, despite the fact that we're kind of in the infancy of that transition, has um, raised some alarms, to say it politely. So, obviously, we don't want the Earth to boil, but we do still (laughs) want our phones. Is there a pathway out of this, Jen? (laughs) I'm sorry. I'm just imagining people looking at their phones right now going, look, I like the Earth, but this is my phone, man. Yeah. (laughs) <laughs> I actually think that's a thing that happens often where, you know, like you get it confronted by these really heavy, full-on news stories about climate change that make you feel powerless, right? They, they always make you feel powerless. And then when you sort of break it down to its attendant elements and you're looking at the technology around you and you're wondering, oh, I still want this thing, but how do I make that work with not wanting the earth to become a giant overheated sewer? And it's difficult. It's like it is inherently difficult to kind of uh, balance those things out in your mind. It is really tricky. And I think that's how we got ourselves into the situation in the first place, at least in part. Because, yeah, I mean, some of these creature comforts that we've come up with are really very handy. And, yeah, so working out how to continue to have them while, yeah, not boiling to death is important. I think, I mean, one of the big things is obviously recycling, but some of these elements within the phones have been very difficult to separate. And also, you know, even recycling things like uh, solar panels has traditionally been thought of as particularly difficult because they've got a coating around them. But if you try hard enough, most things can be recycled certainly with policies, as as we've seen. But if there's a lot of willpower and a lot of policies put into these sorts of things where, you know, there's initiatives to recycle them, then potentially it can be done. It just requires potentially higher prices, which people aren't always comfortable with, because it is probably cheaper to make some of these devices by mining than it is to make these devices from recycled materials. However, you've got to be thinking about the price in terms of that boiling your life business, which we don't want to do. So I think it'll be it'll be interesting to see how we tackle e-waste in the future because it comes up every now and again. And Australia has actually had some uh, recycling systems in place for a long period of time, some of which are quite successful. But a lot of people aren't aware of them or they don't use them or, uh, you know, that I, I don't even think they're set up so that everybody can use them. They're not resourced in that way because for such a long period of time, people's phones just go in bottom drawers rather than go off to be recycled. And at some point, that idea will have to change. 
Right, look, it's fair to say this is obviously more complicated than simply recycling, but I do think, you know, when I was mentioning earlier this, this feeling of powerlessness, that is one of those areas where we can make an impact. You know, we all produce, I mean, I'm just going to make a, a steady assumption here that if you're listening to download this show, you probably got some technology that you've acquired over the years. And sometimes it's actually a bit hard to know what is the the least problematic way you can deal with that technology afterwards. Jen, are there things that people can do? Absolutely. So, uh, for example, there's there's Mobile Muster, which is actually funded by the mobile phone industry where you can actually send off your phone to be recycled. And I think they've got drop-off points when we're actually allowed back in non-essential shops. And there's even there's uh, different uh, places that you can go and you can look up online um, where you can recycle e-waste like monitors and television sets and those sorts of things rather than just dump them on the curb whenever you're allowed to or, or take them out and see them explode as you throw them into the dump. Haven't done that. Don't know where that came from. Um, so th- those things are, are, are actually all kind of really, really important. And it, it would be nice to, to see these sorts of things live a second life, apart from just, you know, handing them down to the unfortunate person in your household who is going to use an older phone, essentially. But part of this also probably comes down to maybe not upgrading phones and, and other devices as, as regularly as we do. And that's going to be a trickier sell for everybody, I think. Is it worth paying closer attention, Dan, to where exactly it is these metals come from in the first place? Because, I mean, it is something that, you know, you just buy your phone. You don't really think about where it comes from. Yes, definitely. Uh, especially as we uh, venture more and more into getting the resources we need to battle climate change. So, for instance, cobalt is really important for that. And about 70% of that is mined from the Democratic Republic of the Congo, which is kind of notorious for using a lot of like child labour in that uh, whole process of mining cobalt. And also lithium for batteries as well. Uh, There's been a lot of issues with extraction of lithium uh, ruining waterways in Chile, for example. So this is going to be actually not just with phones, but a a really big issue in the coming decades of weighing up, okay, so we need these materials to fight climate change, but the short-term impact on the local area, be they on the people who have to mine it or on the environment from from which it's mined, is going to be pretty significant. So we're going to have to figure out a way to reach compromises on that. Uh, And looking at how little compromise we've been able to make in the way of climate change in the last few years um, doesn't inspire much confidence. Jen, is there any sense from tech manufacturers that they're finding more sustainable ways of building some of the devices that we love and use every day? Yeah, surprisingly, um, some of them have definitely taken steps in this regard. Um, I think Apple's probably the most prominent. Samsung's been announcing some stuff recently, but I mean, Apple produces a lot of gear. Um, and so it, it's nice to see them taking a lead on this and, and not only sort of announcing carbon neutral strategies, but also a lot of their new Macs, um, because they're made from aluminium, they're made from recycled aluminium. We've also seen kind of a more controversial take on that, which is uh, a lot of, I've been starting with Apple, but also feeding down to the rest of the industry. We're not seeing charges ship with phones and, and even tablets anymore, which is potentially disturbing from an old charger may blow up your house kind of strategy. But in terms of saving the planet, it's actually quite good. And it also means that, you know, these things ship a lot more easily, take up a lot less space. And so that's been positive. But, I mean, it would be nice to see more companies get on board this idea of of using recycled materials as a marketing thing. Um, And even if we have to spend a little bit more, you know, potentially we're ensuring the future of our gadgets. All right. That is all we've got time for on the show this week. Huge thank you to Jen Dudley-Nicholson from News Corp. Thanks so much for being on the show. 
Pleasure. Thank you. And Daniel Van Boom, news editor with CNET. Thanks so much for coming back on the show. Thank you very much. And if you enjoyed the program, make sure you leave a review on whichever podcasting app you happen to peruse us on. And with that, I shall leave you. My name's Mark Fennell, and thanks for listening to another episode of Download This Show.